rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. The church improves in difficult times. James 1, 2 through 4 um, is support for that, if you want to look that up at another time. God uses trials, persecution, and suffering to increase his people's faith. He does it to mature them. And over this past year and a half, We've tasted a trial or two, especially on the gospel front. But mostly we've only so far detected a smell of what might come further for us down the path. But that prospect of persecution, that prospect of suffering for Christ makes us anxious. By gospel trials, persecution, and suffering, I'm referring to people and governments actually opposing the gospel of God's Son. I'm referring to the pangs that come against God's people because they promote a biblical world and life view to the community and the nation in which they live. It's, it's the Great Commission-related suffering. When the church says, thus saith the Lord, and the world doesn't like it. This is when gospel trials, persecution, and suffering comes. There hasn't been a lot yet. But mostly because we haven't been faithful. I think these last 18 months have forced the church's hand and made us to start to think, what am I willing to do as a Christian if my actions cost me my job or my home or separate me from my spouse and children? How far am I willing to go to contest the civil authorities or the church? or my employer, or even family members? How far? If they demand something, if they disagree with what I'm trying to bring from Christ, if I do not accept that they have a God-given right over me in this area or that, what will that mean? These are the trials of gospel substance. Paul writes this letter from jail. This is important for you to remember. He says in Philippians 1, 13 and 14, my imprisonment 
is for Christ. And what's more, he wrote that others in the church, this is interesting, that others in the church were beginning to take more risks promoting Christ's kingdom because Paul was gladly willing to suffer. Philippians 1.14 says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's interesting. Look how far God has brought the church. Two years ago, two years ago, a bum knee or a colicky baby or loss of job or college finals or rainy day or whatever other difficult circumstances would have been labeled our difficult burden. We had to carry our cross. It was our cross to bear those things. But those things do not fall into the category of suffering for Christ. They are not persecution. The thing is, though, not too many Christians can say that they ever have suffered for Christ. More likely, you were online, you read someone's blog, and the sentiment was like this, TGIF, I worked 55 hours already by yesterday. My neck is killing me, and I hardly slept last night. My kids aren't listening, and now my internet's not working, and I need my coffee. Hashtag, I can do all things through Christ. Hashtag one day at a time. Hashtag come Lord Jesus. That sounds funny and silly, but that's really the American Christianity we've gotten used to. That's what many consider Christian suffering. There is suffering pain in this world, to be sure, and some of those things is suffering. Aches and scratches and bites and bruises come with the package since the fall. And both believers and unbelievers suffer these things. However, Christian trials, gospel persecution and suffering are tied to the war between good and evil. The conflict that occurs between the sons of God and the sons of the devil. This is where the cross must be carried. This war was what motivated the Roman Empire and the Jews to oppose the Apostle Paul and arrest him. It is this seemingly never-ending conflict that Jesus had also entered and willingly sacrificed himself to win the war. It says in Philippians 2, Paul brings this up, and being found found in human form, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the war in which Paul wants the church to fight. When he says in the first chapter, beginning in verse 27, only let, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened. This is, this is important. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them. This is still Paul. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now now hear that I still have. Join me. In this suffering. So with Christian trials, persecution, and suffering in mind, Paul pens this letter from prison. And when he arrives at today's paragraph, now listen to it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The first point I want to make is that this is, verse 4 is an imperative sentence. Imperative sentence. Paul is telling you to do something. Rejoice, he says, always. And he repeats it for emphasis. Again, I will say, rejoice. What what does he mean by that? He means that you should find the joy God has planted in all things that he has given you to do. In life and in death, in sickness and in health, but especially... In Christian trials, persecution, and suffering. None of us have suffered for the suffered for these as Paul did. No one in the history of the world, save Christ, has suffered for these things as Paul. Jesus had said of Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is a lot more than a sore toe. This is a lot more than kids that aren't behaving like you wish they would. This is different. And look, he, Paul, he, he's been beaten, mocked, flogged slandered, left for dead, now in prison, expecting that he might be executed. 
yet he finds joy in the journey. He, he works his, his abuse and mistreatment. Okay, think about it. He's, he works his abuse and mistreatment into the ability to rejoice in Christ. And that's because he knows Jesus is constant. And it's what Jesus wants. Paul lives and fights for the Lord. And as John Gill comments, Jesus is always the same. And so our pursuit of him and his kingdom's purpose can be unwavering and unflinching. We can rejoice always. When new gospel conflicts present themselves, we often need, okay, to adjust our grip, to, take, to get a bead on it. Fair enough. But then we should lean in as Christ's ambassadors and rejoice that he wishes to use us. Rejoicing in the Lord is an imperative and it brings me to my second point, that we can, because the reality for you and me is that the Lord is at hand. We can because the Lord is at hand. He is here with us. He is not a distant ruler. He is an ever-present king. This is, this is what you've got to get straight, especially when things seem like they're getting dicey. He has not gone away and left you to figure it out, to wing it. The Lord is at hand. You see, after Jesus humbled himself and obeyed to the point of death on the cross, God exalted him and, and gave him the name above every name. So now, every tongue has to confess and every knee has to bow before him in heaven and on earth. They don't want to. Tough, tough. Nobody gets away with anything. Not in the least whisper. Not in the least planned strategy. No one gets away with anything. He will, we, all, we all answer to him. And he's chosen you and me to represent him to others. Paul was always on that mission. And he told the Philippians, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The reason I chose this passage, and I think it's important today, is because I find many, even in the church, do not have peace about the events around them. Because of the events around them, let me put it that way. Don't go running ahead in your flesh. Things cropping up around us, don't go running ahead in, in your flesh. Don't go becoming all self-righteous and adding everything you don't like to the cause of Christ, as if the two were the same. The apostle told them to be reasonable people. That's what it says. He writes, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
This means that their conduct should be gentle, forbearing. You and I are not to be in conflict over selfish things. We are not to go looking for fights. We should not be quickly angered. Indeed, we do not fight for our kingdom, do we? For Brian's kingdom, for Fursell's kingdom, for, for David's kingdom. We fight for the Lord's kingdom. In fact, regarding so many things, we encourage liberty. We encourage do your own thing for so many things. And we must, frankly, rather suffer evil than inflict it upon someone else. Church has to understand that. We must rather suffer evil than inflict it upon someone else. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Are you reasonable as a man or woman? Is that what they say about you? He's a reasonable person. Or do they think you're just some stubborn Dutch man or German? Are you righteous? Or should I say, are you rigorous toward others rather than kind? That's a problem. Does your troubled spirit, okay, all these things going on, your troubled spirit produce harshness because you just want to strike out at someone? That's a problem. There's a commentary called the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges, and this is, this is what it says about that word reasonableness. Reasonableness means, in effect, considerateness. The attitude of thought and will, which in remembrance of others forgets self and willingly yields up the purely personal claims of self. The selfless man is the moderate man of the passage. The man who is yielding his heir in respect of personal feeling or interest Listen, he's yielding his heir. He's willing to give up a lot. He's yielding his heir in respect of personal feeling or interest, though firm as a rock in respect of moral principle. So then, as a person, you should be willing to seek the interest of anyone above your own. But as a Christian, you must not bend. This calls for For biblical knowledge, it calls for godly wisdom. We need to know what God says, so we need to know when not to bend. For there are many things we may find disagreeable in the earth. I want you to listen closely to this. There are many things we may find disagreeable in the earth. We may not like this rule or that person or some interruption to our plans or a lame family tradition. But, what are the things that Jesus Christ commands? For those are the burdens under which you must be willing to stand up. Oh, it's easy, and I warn you, 
It's easy to think that your likes and dislikes, your do's and don'ts, are the same thing as Christ's. It's easy, and I warn you, American patriot, to think that your country's principles and military decisions and customs and treaties stand for the same things Christ stands for. It's easy, and I warn you, to think that your church denomination has forever been on the side of good with no faults or traditions that need to be repealed. No. No. You should not meld or conflate Christ's commands with any of these. You consider yourself a Christian first, a citizen of heaven, and your personal preferences... Your church affiliation, your American citizenship must be a distant second. The more hostile, in fact, the more hostile any one of them becomes to Christ, the greater you must increase the distance. Be willing to give them up. Back to the Lord is at hand, okay? This is the key to rejoicing. It's the key to peace in the midst of trials, persecution, and suffering. He is near. That's the key. He is near. And for Paul, that means you do not need to be anxious about anything. To be anxious is to be, what? Fearful. We become afraid of man, afraid of conflict. Afraid of circumstances that may arise, afraid for our lives. And we start to wonder what's going to happen to me? How will this affect my job, my home, my health, my family? Yes, world produced fear upsets us, it gets into our heads, we dwell on it. It unsettles our hearts and minds and steals away our peace. In contrast, Paul believed if you feared the Lord and understood the beauty and reality of his nearness, of his sovereignty, then you you need not fear anything else, including death. Even in this letter in chapter 2, Paul tells the Christians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Fear the Lord, and you need fear nothing else. Brings me to the third point, practice, practice. You have to tap into this fearlessness. You need to practice what? Brother Lawrence, I think it was, called it practicing the presence of Christ. You have to practice the presence of Christ. In verse 6, second part, he writes, but in everything, Paul does, but in everything, By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Tell him. Talk to him. Doubtless, Paul 
Paul experienced rich devotional time with God. It's the, it's the answer for fearlessness. Whenever things become too depressing and I feel too alone and the cares of the world seem unbearable, I go to God in prayer. I know many of you do that. If I feel like there's just too much to overcome and the world is too wicked and I am given to sin, I ask the Lord to forgive me and be with me and to bring his kingdom about in my life and also in the lives of those I love, which is family members, the church, and the community around us, and then even the nation. And I read and I pray and I learn to trust to keep his biblical promises to me. He will. He's all I have. But he's everything. Christ's opponents do not have him as their sovereign because they have yet to repent and turn to him. They can only reason and get depressed and plot and worry and flail about on their own. Not us. We know the Lord is at hand. We get him on our side. He has picked us. However, I, I think you must realize there are two aspects to that statement that the Lord is at hand. And those aspects are captured by the quote that I put in the bulletin from J.I. Packer this week. It says this, A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. Did you hear that? A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. What did he mean by that? What did Packer mean? He meant there are two things to consider in regard to knowing God. There is knowing about him, and there is experiencing him. One is on paper and true. The other is in person and real and effectual. For example... We can believe Jesus Christ is seated as the high king of heaven. We can listen to podcasts. We can read articles, books, the Bible itself. And we know this to be true. And that he is currently drawing men to himself, putting enemies under his feet, and that, and that is true. And that is comforting. But if we never ourselves bring our requests to him or ask him to intervene for us and give us courage and so on, we are in essence not experiencing the beauty of his kingship. We know things about him, but we are not experiencing him as we should. It's like you find a valuable book and you put it on your library shelf but you never read it, right? Or you have a wide assortment of tools in your workshop, all in the, in the right spot, the little outlines on the pegboard and your, your, your table saw and everything's clean and, and precise and well-ordered, but you have no project to work on. 
Or you buy a sleek, fast boat, never bring it to a lake. Indeed, in order not to be anxious or fearful, you must talk to God. Make your requests known to Him. Spend time with Him. And I assure you, sometimes sometimes you come into that throne room half-hearted, unsure, hurried, feeling guilty for not praying more often, whatever. But come you must. The first effort, it may be feeble. You may think, I don't even know if this is really mattering. I don't know if it really matters that I do this. It may be feeble. And one in which you actually ask him, you ask him to make it real and to engage you. After all, we, we do depend upon his graciousness even in our prayers. The Lord is at hand. Alexander McLaren commented that such, an, such a union, and he said, reciprocal and close. Such a union, recipro- reciprocal and close, is the secret of all blessedness. But, no, I'm just going to run off, listen to some conservative radio, hear a couple podcasts, read an article, and get all fretty about it. And I'm going to try to figure out things on my own with what I know and the people I know. No wonder we get anxious at times. It is unquestionably by prayer that Paul learned how to be content in whatever situation. Philippians 4.11. Otherwise, that guy, man, can you imagine? You, the Apostle Paul, he would have been fretting, anxious, a disordered mess. So what about you? Do you make your requests known to God Intimately. Because if this is your way to go to God when you get anxious, the consequence is peace. Peace. That brings to the final point. Peace is the consequence. And the peace of God, verse 7 says, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's think about that. The gospel conflict. We live in a world where um, light and darkness are at war. The sons of the devil are in conflict with the sons of God. And the word of God makes the division very clear when we actually teach it and preach it. It's a stench in the nostrils of those who are perishing and a sweet aroma to those who are being saved as Bob made clear last Sunday. So when Jesus said, I do not come to bring peace but a sword, then how does that go together with the peace mentioned here by Paul as this wonderfully calming consequence of Christ's nearness and our prayer and worship of him? Can we really experience peace in a fallen world in which we've been 
promised conflict? The answer is in the question. Jesus warned his disciples that he would be leaving them. He added, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Again, in John 14, 26 through 27, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You should have peace, Christian. But it is peace you must get from God the Spirit. His his fruit can be yours and growing in you. And when the world treats you with a bit of contempt, though you behave as a reasonable person, you can still find peace. But you need to approach God to get it. Good luck if you don't. If you do not have peace, then you're not doing what Paul teaches in this passage, nor what Paul practiced in his own life as an apostle. You will need to work with God on that. Finally, Paul's hopes were high for the Philippians. They were good and faithful people, so his instruction to them should resonate with you, congregation, for you are a good and faithful people. This is for you then, found in Philippians 1, 27 through 30, a little bit paraphrased. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He goes on. This is still part of it. There is a clear, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul adds, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Congregant, the things you wrestle with even today are more substantive, right, than many of the previous years of your life. This is from the hand of God. You will mature from it if you remain faithful to the Great Commission. Lean into it. And be cautious, be cautious as to what is Christ's commands versus what are your preferences. Do not fool yourself with that. This is what I think has caused the most conflict in our churches, is we are fooling ourselves of what is Christ's commands versus something we've heard on the radio that we buy into, that Christ perhaps says nothing about. Be careful. Do not confuse the two. Realize that the trials, persecution, and suffering is still somewhat distant. But if you stand firm now and strive for the faith without being frightened by 
these early opponents. Perhaps we gain some victories. Perhaps Christ gives us victories and we turn away that much greater persecution that could come upon the disobedient. If not, then fight for the kingdom of the Son of God. Plant your feet solidly in the word of God and in the side of light. Fight against an enemy that refuses your king and doesn't tolerate peace on earth. As you fight, remain reasonable as people. Be personally willing to seek the interest of others above your own. But as a Christian, you must not bend. Finally, Christian, you should have peace. But it is peace you must get from God the Spirit. You need to approach God through prayer to get it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to uh, develop us as people. Uh, Open our eyes that we might see more clearly. and That we might rightly divide your word and stand for it and for you. And not allow a lot of other miscellaneous things get worked into it unbeknownst to us. So keep us alert, Lord, please. Cause us to be the kind of people that are willing to suffer for your kingdom. And then use us. In your name we pray.